Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, I'm David Blight. Welcome to Slavery and Its Legacies, a podcast of the Gilda Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition. Slavery and Its Legacies interviews visiting scholars, activists, and others about their contributions to the understanding of slavery, past and present, and its ongoing role in the development of the modern world. Hello, this is Thomas Thurston. Today I'm talking with Samantha Seeley, who's an assistant professor of history at the University of Richmond. She uh, has taught there since uh, 2014. She completed her bachelor's degree at Brown University, holds a PhD in early American history from New York University, and is our four-month fellow, spring fellow, here at the Gilder Lehrman Center, where she's looking at race removal and the right to remain in the early American Republic, uh, working on her new book. Samantha, it's really great having you here. Thanks so much for having me. So could you say a little first about how you uh, became interested in this subject? Sure. I was a beginning graduate student looking for a topic, and my first archival experience in graduate school was in um, the archives in Virginia at the Library of Virginia. And I was looking around the um, court documents there, and I found this kind of little slip of paper and it was a petition from an enslaved man, uh, a, a recently freed man, excuse me, for the right to remain um, in his county in Virginia, in Peter, in Petersburg City, actually, in Virginia in the early U.S. Republic. And he, um, you know, it was just this really tiny document, and I had no idea what it meant. And so I started looking around, and it turned out that it was a much larger story um, because hundreds of freed Virginians petitioned the county courts and the state legislature for the right to remain in this period. And they were doing so in reaction to this kind of 1806 law that was passed in Virginia that um, that said that newly freed people had to leave the state within a year of manumission. And so, um, you know, usually when we think about removal in this period, we think about the American Colonization Society right. or Jacksonian Indian removal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, much later period, um, much later projects. And so I started looking around for their precursors in the early U.S. Republic. Um, so long before the founding of the American Colonization Society in 1816, which was this movement to send newly freed people to Liberia, and long before 1830 with the passage of the Jackson, Jackson's Indian Removal Act, um, which basically made it federal policy to move Native people um, you know, Eastern Native people beyond the Mississippi River, long before both of those things, removal was basically knit into the fabric of the nation. It was um, pursued by various reformers, um, as well as state legislators and federal legislators as well. So when you talk about this, uh, this petition, uh, now I think about Virginia uh, just in the years after the revolution as, uh, you know, you, this, this story that there's this a burst of uh, a patriotic sense of liberty and that, and that there are, uh, you know, a number of slaveholders who are who are freeing uh, their uh, their their slaves uh, either immediately or through uh, uh, some sort of uh, you know uh, gradual emancipation. What what accounts for this uh, turnaround? Where now these people who who have you know one assumes have been freed at some time in their history uh, are in danger of being deported, essentially, from the state. 
Yeah, so Virginia is a really interesting example because it's heavily reliant on enslaved labor. There are um, you know, a few hundred thousand enslaved people in Virginia at the end of the war. Um, and in 1782, in a burst of reform spirit that's really um, that's really goaded on by Quakers who are petitioning the state legislature right. to pass a manumission law, they do pass a manumission law in 1782. And that law only liberalizes manumission. So unlike gradual emancipation or outright emancipation in the mid-Atlantic and northern states in Virginia and in uh, Maryland and in Delaware, they pass these laws that reverse uh, about a century of of, uh, legislation that basically say that any slaveholder can manumit their slaves if they'd like to. And that's different from what had preceded it before people had to pursue kind of special um, permission from the governor in the case of Virginia, to, to manumit people. So this is a, an opening up of emancipation law in Virginia of a much more kind of limited, in a much more limited sense. Than, than just making the procedure easier. Just making easier. it easier, right, yeah. Right. And, you know, people had been, Quakers especially, had been pushing for that kind of law for a while because they had already arranged private manumission agreements with enslaved people in Virginia where they would let them, you know, act as free people, but legally they were still bound to Quaker families. So... People were already doing this on the ground, and it only becomes law in 1782. And so even after that, there's a lot of contention about that law Mm -hmm. because Virginia is so heavily reliant on enslaved labor and because a lot of uh, white elites worry that enslaved people could be this kind of revolutionary political force in, um, in Virginia. And they worry about that in part because they had just seen it happen, because during the revolution, when Lord Dunmore sailed his ships into the Chesapeake Bay, thousands of enslaved people had run away to join the British um, and to become this kind of, in the eyes of elite white Virginians, Virginians this quote-unquote insurrectionary force. So when they talk right. about um, freed people being dangerous as a political class, that's their, the experience that they're referring to. So there's a lot of pushback through the 1780s about even just this small step to liberalize manumission. There are right. petitions in 1785 that are submitted from, um, I think, about 10 counties, particularly in the kind of more heavily slaveholding regions of Virginia, that basically ask for the repeal of this law. And so there's a lot of political movement against it. And so this 1806 law is in some ways a fulfillment of those continuing pro-slavery views of this continuing idea that freed people might be a dangerous political group. And how many, uh, by 1806, what, how many uh, free African-Americans are in the state of Virginia, at least, you know, your best estimate? That's a good question. I think by 1800, the number is 20,000. Oh, boy. Um, and I forget the numbers for 1810. Uh-huh. Are they, um, are they, where are they uh, uh, kind of where are they? Where, where are they? Con- where are the largest numbers of them? Definitely in the Tidewater region and in the new burgeoning towns of the of Virginia. So there are all these towns that spring up along the fall lines as tobacco and wheat processing centers, and those are the places where freed people find the most autonomy and um, and freedom away from from um, you know white control. Basically, they can find space to to create their own communities in these burgeoning towns. And so a place like Richmond or Petersburg in particular, Petersburg has the highest density of, right. uh, of newly freed people in uh, in the state. And so places like Richmond or Petersburg or Norfolk or Alexandria become these centers for free black life in the early republic. And so a lot of the movement 
towards this 1806 removal law comes from urban areas in particular. And part of that is also, you know, part of this reaction by 1806 is about Gabriel's rebellion, which is a rebellion that was supposedly, at least according to the court documents, planned for Richmond in 1800 by this man named Gabriel Prosser and um, and his followers. And so in 1800, this slave rebellion is discovered and... 20 people are executed. There are a huge number of trials around Gabriel's rebellion. And um, so part of what people, what white legislators are also reacting to is this real fear of insurrection. And they've just seen that in 1800. And so it takes them a few years to be able to pass the law that is a reaction to Gabriel's rebellion. But they do other things. In the meantime, they increase urban policing um, and they restrict the movement of free people between counties in the state. So they're doing other things right. in reaction to it. So these are all kind of security measures you might think of. And Poli- how many police measures? Yeah, yeah police policing measures. And um, so, so many of the uh, of, of the freed African Americans in in Virginia at this time uh, may have been free for for twenty years, uh, and of course had families and had children who are born free. They're not formally enslaved. Um, so what's at stake for them? What are the terms of of this 1806 law and others uh, like them? Yeah, so it, so the law really only affects people who are freed after it's passed, um, after oh. 1806. But for a lot of families, they straddle the line between slavery and freedom. So not all, you know, communities were not just made up of free people separately from enslaved people. Right, sure. So the best example that I like to use is the example of Judith Hope, who petitions the state legislature three times for the right to remain in Virginia after the War of 1812 um, in the late 18-teens. And she does so because her parents are both free. Her father was a very famous barber in Williamsburg, and then he moved to Richmond after the capital, the state capital, moved to kind of follow his business, um, these elite Virginians um, that he worked for. And so he had bought his own, or he had been given his own freedom, then he bought his wife's freedom, but this, in the meantime, this law was passed, this 1806 law. Right. And so when he died in his will, he wanted Judith to be free, his daughter, Judith, to be free. And so he asked his wife to sell his belongings and buy her freedom. But her mother was put in this terrible position because she wanted to buy Judith's freedom. But she also, she wanted to free her, but she also didn't want her to be sent to the, out of the state. Right. So Judith writes this really affecting series of petitions where she talks about um, her banishment from all of the kind relations she's ever known in her le- in her life. Um, she talks about how family is more dear to her even than her freedom. And so she's really, you know, talking about a very different notion of freedom than what we may usually think of as a kind of liberal individual quality. Rather, she's talking about how it's made um, – you know, freedom is something that's made for her in community and right. and through connections with her family. Right. You've shown shown me that petition. It's uh, tremendously moving, and it does really show the uh, kind of Sophie's choice that she's faced with between, uh, honestly, between, you know, freedom and completely uh, uh, leaving the community and family that she's always known and remaining enslaved. Excellent. Now, is, is this happening... Uh, throughout the South, or is it uh, limited to the border states? I assume Maryland is going through similar uh, uh, regulations and rules, laws. Yeah, so Virginia passes this law, this exile law, and all of the other states around it, all of the neighboring states, um, react to it by passing their own restrictive immigration laws, 
Um, these laws usually say that free people have to post a really huge bond in order to enter and settle in the state, or they're not allowed to settle at all, or it gives these laws will give restrictions on how many days they can spend in the state before they'll be jailed. Um, and so Maryland, Delaware, and eventually Ohio, or Ohio, and Ohio, and then eventually Indiana and Illinois will do the same. And even Pennsylvania, which we think of as this kind of um, this, you know, center for abolitionism. And it certainly is. I mean, Philadelphia is a really important center for abolitionism in this period. But even in Pennsylvania, they're considering these restrictive immigration laws. They they consider them very seriously between 1805 and 1813, I think four times. Um, This comes up in the in the state legislature. So all these other states are kind of reacting to what Virginia does. And um, you know, it's really becomes a conversation, I think, about federalism and the quality of citizenship and and whether free African-Americans have access to citizenship in this period, the qualities of citizens in this period. And this is a conversation that happens a decade before the second Missouri Compromise debates, which right. is when we usually right. think of that conversation as right. arising. And I want to get back to that. But uh, but I and the question of citizenship, because I think that in some ways that's really at the heart of of your your um, your argument, this right to remain, these mm-hmm. rights that uh, come with citizenship, but something you know, is very similar is going on with uh, with uh, Indian removal, pre uh, Trail of Tears uh, relations with uh, Native populations throughout uh, the, the the North, the, the South, the Midwest. Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> at the same time that all of these conversations about free African-Americans as a kind of insurrectionary force is happening in the Upper South. There's also a huge movement to dispossess Native people of their lands in what will become the Midwest in this kind of um, area north of the Ohio River and south of Lake Erie in particular. And the reason that, you know, a lot of these removal projects come out of what white elites think of as the kind of problems of the revolution slavery and freedom, and in this case, land and finance, because what that Indian land is supposed to do is pay the debts of the revolution um, right. very in a very literal sense. So after the war, the federal government or the, the Confederation government is in a huge amount of debt. They don't have the power to tax. And so they look to these Indian lands in what becomes the Midwest and Ohio in particular as a kind of general fund is what they call it for settling their foreign and domestic debts. And so they have a huge stake in treating for sessions in that area. They also have a huge stake in that because a lot of the states have um, promised Indian land to veterans for to All pay right. for their service, these kind of land bounties that would get people to sign up to serve. And so um, Indian land becomes the, like a literal kind of inheritance from, sure. the, from the revolution right. for, for a lot of people in this period, for a lot of white people in this period in the East. And so after the the revolution in 1783, a lot of Native people had sided with the British. And so they're told they weren't included in the Peace of Paris, the Treaty of Paris that ended the war in 1783. And so they were told by the Americans who went out to treat with them for sessions in, in 1784 and 1785, they were told that they had lost the war and thus the United States had the right to deport them completely. Um, 
and so and that they must treat for sessions. And so all of these kind of fraudulent treaties were made in the early 1780s right after the war where only, you know, a certain faction of different native nations would participate um, a kind of peace faction. And they were really contentious in Indian country because what people really wanted was to hold on to the Midwest. Sure. They had already lost Kentucky um, to to uh, white migrants and to, you know, really kind of deleterious uh, policies by the colonies. So they'd already, the Shawnees had already lost their Kentucky hunting grounds. And so what people really wanted was to hold on to the Midwest. And the story of removal in the Midwest is the story of many broken treaties over time. We don't usually call that Indian removal, but on the ground, that's certainly what it looked like. Right. People, you're right. People are leaving, are being pushed out and, uh, and, and, and treaties are being abrogated. Is there any sort of, um, uh, you know, what's the re- is there any response that uh, uh, any allies uh, who stand, uh, stand up and, and try to fight against this, either through litigation in the courts or, uh, say, abolitionists or, or people that are, uh, are opposing these policies, uh, both regarding uh, African Americans and Indians? Yeah, I mean, in the case of the of Indian removal in the Midwest, there's a really strong indigenous confederation in the Midwest that's fighting against these policies throughout the 1780s, the 1790s, and even into the War of 1812. Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> and it's a confederation of native nations, across, you know, from across the Great Lakes and the Ohio Valley, and even some Cherokees. Um, and and they're fighting against U.S. federal armies who are coming in to. Um, to take over this land. And so there's a really strong Native confederation that takes on the U.S. government in this period. And they also have some Quaker allies, although, um, you know, who come and observe U.S. treaties in this period. Although really the people who are fighting Indian removal in this period are indigenous people themselves. Um, And then in terms of free African Americans, they also have Quaker allies who, um, who... are you know particularly fighting in their for their rights in particular places? Um, so Quakers again in Philadelphia. This is a place where the right to remain is absolutely a part of the conversation, although perhaps not in those terms. But their Quakers are helping freed people to sue for their or, or enslaved people to sue for their freedom if they make it to Philadelphia. They're helping them with their legal cases, so they're helping them to make a new home in Philadelphia. Basically, um, it becomes this kind of um, this you know, refuge or what they would call an asylum for fugitive slaves and for newly freed African-Americans. And they're also fighting kidnapping cases, which is another kind of removal. Um, Because the way that fugitive slave laws work in this period, it makes it very easy for people to falsely claim that someone is actually enslaved and to kidnap them and take them um, down to the Upper South from Philadelphia. So Quakers are also fighting against kidnapping cases, which becomes a huge issue in the 1790s and the early 1800s. Now, earlier you uh, were talking about citizenship and how all of this fits into uh, how people are thinking about what defines citizenship and what is the place of African Americans and Indians uh, within uh, uh, within the new uh, United States, what is the um, kind of ideological underpinning to uh, to these these acts of removals? What is it, what is it that the kind of uh, you know that Americans are are arguing or thinking? What what's behind all of this in their mind? 
I think when people talk about these removal laws, they're really trying to, they're really having kind of proxy conversations about citizenship or at least about belonging, um, you know, about who belongs in the new nation and who will have rights within it. Um, And so this is another lens through which to see citizenship debates or um, debates about belonging in a period when citizenship is still fuzzy. um, It's determined by the states. It's not clear who will have it and who will not. And so, you know, I think removal kind of crystallizes some of those those debates about belonging in this period. And um, um, and also, I assume what uh, kind of what uh, the rights of African-Americans are going to be in this republic, whether uh, uh, you uh, quote uh, Thomas Jefferson, Mm -hmm. for example, and others who are kind of defining uh, them as a people and Mm -hmm. and how they belong just as a as a as a group. As well as I assume Native Americans, are there other um, are there other groups uh, within uh, the um, that are being targeted, either uh, immigrants from Europe uh, or or elsewhere? Uh, yeah, so there's a scholar who's done a lot of work, um, really wonderful work on immigration in this period and and the kind of precursors to Irish immigration, um, Hideki Hirota. Um, he wrote a book called Expelling the Poor. And so that book really talks about how the roots of later Irish expulsion or, you know, deportation laws Uh will come out of this period, um, particularly in Massachusetts. So Massachusetts does pass this 1794 law that says that they can exile or deport, excuse me, people who um, are impoverished and come into the country, immigrants to the country who are impoverished, and they can send them back across the Atlantic. So there are certainly other people who are being targeted by removal laws. Um, And that's not just about immigration. That's also domestically. Certainly, there are tons of precursors for the way that removal comes up in the early republic. So um, poor laws, especially, are a very important precursor to all of these, um, to all of these projects. Poor laws, you know, from these Elizabethan poor laws, for centuries had said that um, people who wanted poor support had to go back to the town or county or parish of their birth. And they could be physically removed from um, the county they were presently living in back to the county or parish or town of their birth to receive poor support um, or simply because they were targeted by um, by a community. And so poor laws are really the the kind of groundwork for a lot of the way that this legislation gets passed. So, for example, in this 1806 law in Virginia, the proceeds from um, the sale of an enslaved or a newly freed person who stayed past you know, past the time that they were allowed to stay in Virginia, the proceeds from their sale would go to the overseers of the poor. So there's certainly this connection to just legally in the language that they're using between poor law and these new policing powers. Right. And these kind of laws that, uh, say, the Midwestern states have about having to kind of not necessarily post a bond, but show uh, you know, show that you have a certain amount of money yeah. uh, before you're allowed are very similar in a way to the kind of, res- you know, deciding who's poor and who's welcome and who isn't. Yeah, and, and absolutely. F- it's and all about dependency. Right, right. It's not, yeah, it's, I mean, in Virginia, it's very much about black politics and this uh-huh. idea of bla- a black collective politics that could be dangerous to white power. But in the Midwest, um, in, other place, in, un- in other places, it becomes a question about 
dependency. And so that act, as you say, of posting a bond is about making sure that someone won't become dependent in freedom, which is actually not that different from right. how people in the mid-Atlantic are talking about gradual emancipation, that people must be freed gradually so that they can be kind of acclimated to freedom and care for themselves. It's this paternalistic idea yeah. that a lot of even white abolitionists had about what freed people might do with, well, with freedom. Is it simply about dependency or is dependency being used as a kind of political cover for something which may be more about race and who uh, kind of you want to define as uh, belonging here? Yeah, absolutely. It's certainly a political cover um, about race. and. Um, but it's interesting that it takes this kind of older form from, I think, from the poor laws and from early ideas about how to remove people who, quote unquote, didn't belong. And, and you know, those laws were also always applied racially, too. Um, they were also, you know, applied unequally, I think, across racial lines, um, even before the early republic period. So. And, um, and, and, you know, in thinking about removal, there's also uh, precursors to uh, the American colonization movement that are going on at, in these periods. Uh, could you say just a little about that? Yeah. So in the 1780s and in the 1790s, especially in the Upper South, a lot of people are talking about um, <clears throat> colonization and the idea that newly freed people, that a way to foster gradual emancipation in a place like Virginia might be to send newly freed people beyond the bounds of the nation itself out to the West, out to what they called the vacant Western territory, which is really Indian country. Um, right. And um, Indian Indians would have disputed their idea that that land was vacant. But um, and then, you know, colonization thrives as an idea in many different places in this sort of PC way. So it's very popular in the Upper South in this period, but it also takes hold in northern cities. So there's slim, there's a kind of slim archive of um, mutual aid societies, black mutual aid societies in places like Boston or Newport or um, Providence, mm -hmm. having this conversation about whether or not they might want to emigrate um, out of the country. And they always talk about the West Coast of Africa as a site for um, for colonization. And part of that conversation in these northern contexts was about Sierra Leone and right, this sure. contemporaneous project by the British to send newly freed people to Sierra Leone. Right. So there's, yeah, exactly. And who, many of whom had originally been, most I assume, had, had been uh, uh, enslaved in, in the colonies and uh, mm -hmm. were part of that exodus uh, uh, after, the, the war, yeah. after the war. Yeah. Um, you know, all of this, uh, as I'm, I'm sure uh, in the course of your studies, you must have realized, um, you know, sounds very familiar. This lang I mean, really, this is a language of, of, of deportation, of who one decides is, is welcome to enter this country and who uh, needs to be uh, rounded and pushed out of this country and uh, conversations of walls and uh, and that. I mean, can you <laughs> say a little about that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I was telling you the other day that I, when I first started this project, I thought it was a project about racial segregation and trying to understand the kind of roots of that in the early Republic period. But as time has gone on, um, and I've you know thought a little bit more about our present moment, and our present moment has changed. In some ways, not changed, but in a lot of ways, it has changed, um, especially in the past year. 
that you know this has really become a project about the roots of the idea of exile and deportation and this kind of specific targeting of particular groups of people. Right. Um, and William Lloyd Garrison, who I think will conclude the book when I actually get to the conclusion, has this great quote um, in his thoughts on colonization where he says where he talks about philanthropic arithmeticians and this tendency for both colonizationists and proponents of Indian removal to, um, you know, with the scratch of a pen, kind of uh, make these big calculations right. about deporting thousands of people beyond the boundaries of the United States, whether that was Indians or African Americans. And so this idea of philanthropic arithmeticians, you know, in the 19th century, what people might have you know, thought of as a very troubled moral reform platform. Now it's not about philanthropy at all. Right. But this this tendency still to calculate the deportation of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people without considering the impact mm -hmm. on individual lives, I think, is pretty a pretty striking continuity. And, you know, it also seems that, uh, that through our history, there's been uh, uh, a, a pretty virulent strand of 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 white nationalism, the yeah. sense that that really this is a, a white man's country, and that it that's you know who it's made for, and and there are periodically these attempts to do just that, to to kind of cleanse uh, uh, the country or the state or uh, what have you of people that are kind of defined out of uh, the kind of citizenry. Absolutely. Yeah, certainly. I mean, this is also about the roots of white nationalism, too. And I think what's interesting in this period is that, you know, these things were undertaken for very different reasons. So yeah. um, Indian dispossession is obviously about land, um, whereas the whereas the question of deporting free African-Americans was about politics um, and a kind of police power and um, and the racism that undergirded it. But so there are different reasons for why dispossession is so important. But in both cases, you know, in this period, but in both cases, this is um, about about enabling white freedom through the deportation of others. Right. Samantha, could you recommend to our listeners uh, some some other works that touch on this subject? Yeah, um, Nicholas Guyot has written a book really recently that does a lot of the kind of intellectual work to link these two things called Bind Us Apart, right. which is really about racial segregation, ideas about racial segregation in this period. And so that might be my first choice uh -huh. of a source to go to um, that, that ties together some of these things. Well, thanks. Uh, uh, Samantha, it's been great talking to you, and it's uh, been uh, great having you at the center, and I hope it's been a, a fruitful uh, uh, time here. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Slavery and Its Legacies is brought to you by the Gilda Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition, a part of the Whitney and Betty McMillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale University. Additional support is provided by the Rabina Foundation. Each episode is produced by Thomas Thurston and Daniel Vera, with additional production support by the Yale Broadcast Center. For more information about the Gilda Lehrman Center, its activities, and this podcast series, visit glc.yale.edu.